so most of you know that I went to grad school here a very long time ago. Um, during that time, I was the graduate assistant for the political studies program. And one of my jobs was to staff the Model Illinois Government Organization. So not just the club here at UIS, but we were in charge of the whole state program and oversaw the arrangements for all the universities and colleges involved. So I would go to club meetings and I answered organizational questions and traveled to other campuses with the officers. But my whole purpose really for going to grad school was that there were a few of us who were trying to start the first campus ministry at UIS, then Sangamon State. And so this GA position was a great way for me to be on campus and learn the culture and meet students and to help get us organized. And I got a degree on the side. So I had been working with MIG for about four months, and I felt like I knew those students pretty well when the Spring Involvement Expo rolled around. We had that here just a couple weeks ago. Hopefully you got out there and got some free stuff. But I was sitting at a table for Christian Student Fellowship when one of the MIG officers walked up and joked, I didn't know you were one of those. Now, I wasn't insulted. I knew that he was kidding. I wasn't embarrassed for being a Christian, but I was mortified that I had spent four months working with a student and he had no idea that I was a Christian. Like that's the most important thing about who I am. Has that ever happened to you? Like something you thought was obvious about who you are is not obvious at all? I wonder how many of you have felt that tension with your faith. Like you wanna fit in and be accepted, but you also know that your faith makes you stick out and it makes you different. You feel like you should speak up in class when they start bashing Christianity or misrepresenting the Bible, but you don't want to be that guy. Or you know that God has something that can help your friend who struggles, but you're scared that you'll be rejected if you try to bring faith into the conversation. That's the tension that we see in Daniel 3. It's the tension of sticking out in a world where everyone else is trying desperately to fit in. So let's talk about where we've been this semester um, in this Daniel series. We started with chapter one with God's people, the Jews, who have essentially been taken captive and brought to Babylon where they're being reprogrammed to serve the Babylonian empire. And we meet Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these guys were the cream of the crop of Jewish men. And they were sent into training to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. So that was chapter one. Chapter two, Lindsay shared about this last week, about this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and nobody in the kingdom could interpret it until Daniel steps up and through the power of God and God's wisdom is able to interpret the dream uh, for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so tonight we're gonna be in chapter three, and this is about 17 years later. So it's assumed that Daniel is off in another part of the kingdom working because he's actually not part of this story. But his buddies are still around and they're continuing to stand firm and to live differently as exiles and foreigners in Babylon. So um, if we were to look at the beginning of chapter three, it starts off with this scenario where King Nebuchadnezzar has made a statue of gold. It's huge. Um, and it doesn't say in the text what the statue actually looks like. It could be a statue of him, 
Um, if you were raised on Veggie Tales, anybody in the room, you might envision that it's a giant bunny, right? But in some way, it was a statue to Babylon to worship the nation state. It was a statue that was sort of a national symbol. So he invites all of the rulers and the nobles and the leaders, like the who's who of Babylon, to come and dedicate this amazing statue. And then here's what the king's herald says in verse 4. People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Now, I have lots of questions about this. Like, how often does this happen in Babylon? Is it every day that this happens? Is it multiple times a day? Is it kind of like um, like musical chairs where everybody's just walking around, minding their own business, but if the special music starts playing, then they have to stop everything and hit the ground? One commentary suggested that it was likely that this would happen in the morning as the sun would rise and would hit the top of the gold statue, and then there would be a burst of light, and the music would prompt people to bow down and worship the image. But that's exactly what would happen. The music played, and everyone, people of every nation and language, bowed down and worshipped the statue. Now, you might remember that at the end of chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar actually declares that Daniel's God is the God above all other gods. So we might be wondering, why are we now back to worshipping other gods if Nebuchadnezzar realized that there's only one true God? Well, here's something that we have seen all through time. People will claim God, but still hang on to their idols. Let me say that again. Some people will claim God, but still hang on to their idols. So when Nebuchadnezzar does this in chapter 2, he isn't saying that he's giving up everything else for Daniel's God. He's simply adding it to the rest of the gods that he worships. And there are lots of religions that are okay with this, even to this day. Hinduism, Confucianism, many tribal religions. These are, this is called polytheism. Lots of gods, many gods. Now, the Jewish religion, which is what becomes our Christianity, was the only one that was exclusive. Christianity is monotheistic. When our God talks about this, it's called idolatry, and it's addressed in the Ten Commandments, like those shall nots. Um, if you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 5, verse 3 says, Do not have any other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them, and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so, this rule really only impacted the Jews in Babylon, because people from other religions could obey and bow down and still be true to their religion. But the Jews weren't permitted to worship other gods. And since the edict called for everyone to bow down when they heard the music, it would have made it really easy to see who wasn't obeying. 
Let's pick it up in verse 8. Some astrologers took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews that you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Verse 13. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? So picture it. It's a huge mass of people who are out and about, the who's who of Babylon. And then the music plays and everyone hits the ground in worship except these three guys. Now we don't see them get together in a huddle to pray about how they should respond. And they didn't do like a three-day fast to decide what to do. They didn't have to think about it because of something we read back in chapter 1. In verse 8 where it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. See, they had resolved, remember? They had made the decision. It didn't matter the circumstances or the cost or the consequences. Their loyalty, their commitment was already decided. They were God's people and they knew that they couldn't worship two gods. So bowing to this statue was not an option. They aren't making a big deal out of it. They're not protesting. They didn't wear like matching shirts with hashtag never bow or hashtag never Nebuchadnezzar on them. They just didn't participate. They weren't protesting against Nebuchadnezzar. They were standing for God. So Nebuchadnezzar comes and he's like, he, you can tell he's trying to give them another chance, right? He's like, hey, listen, let's just do this again. Let's play the music. You do the bowing thing and we'll be good. But if they don't obey, he's going to throw them into the furnace. Um, and look, he, he asked them the question, do you really think that your God can rescue you from me and my furnace? And their answer is in verse 17. They say, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. They say, thanks, but we don't really need you to give us another chance. Like, we're not going to bow. We know God can rescue us, but even if he chooses not to, we're not going to worship your gods. Now, the text says that Nebuchadnezzar is so angry that his face actually changes, and he tells his servants to turn up the furnace as high as it'll go, and they're thrown into the fire with their clothes on. Verse 22 says, The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot 
the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They reply, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was their hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. I think it's funny that King Nebuchadnezzar is so like dramatic. He's going to cut people to pieces. He's going to throw them into a burning fire. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So they're thrown into this blazing furnace, but the king notices that it looks like there's actually four people in the furnace, and they're just walking around. This fourth person is thought to be an angel. We don't really know, but regardless, we know that they weren't alone in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar calls them to come out, and they're not harmed. They don't even smell like smoke. Once again, King Nebuchadnezzar claims that their god is above all other gods. So they resolved to worship no other gods, and God rescued them. But they knew there was a risk. They knew that God didn't have to rescue them. And their allegiance to God wasn't dependent on the outcome. So there are a few things I think we can learn from the story of Daniel's friends. The first one is this, that being a Christian is not compatible with worshiping idols. Now, I know some of you right now are thinking, whew, I'm safe there. Like, I don't worship other gods. I don't have idols. But let's talk for a minute about what it means to worship idols. It's not just about statues. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, wrote, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So an idol is whatever you look at, and deep down in your heart, you think, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant. Then I'll feel secure. There are lots of idols that we have in our lives. Maybe it's a significant other who is committed to me, whether you have it or you're just dreaming of having it, or an impressive resume or job title, 
or Instagram likes. And I know that sounds really dumb and um, people like me are always uh, hammering on millennials and Gen Z people about their social media, but I, I doubt that there is a person in this room who has not posted a picture to Instagram and then gone back to see who has liked it. It's a problem for all of us. Sometimes we make idols out of having a large bank account. If only I can have savings, then I'll feel secure. Or maybe it's acceptance from popular people or from the right people. Or success, however the world defines it. We are guilty of worshiping idols way more than we would like to admit. The second thing that we can see is that being a Christian will cost us. Um, it may cost us our reputation our privacy. It may cost us friends or status or um, our finances. It's going to be different for all of us, but, but being different, standing out, involves a cost. Now, I asked Kate Janes to come up and to share a little bit about her experience with us. Kate transferred to UIS last semester from Carthage College after she realized that she needed something different in her life. So Kate, come on up here. Um, I wondered if you would just share with us kind of what were the circumstances of your life that made you know that you needed to do something different? So to start off, Carthage was, Carthage, excuse me, I have my invisible <laughs> I need to say that. So Carthage was originally my dream school. I had won a scholarship to go there, and the campus was gorgeous. It was right on Lake Michigan, so every sunrise and sunset was beautiful. And I ran cross country and track. Um, I think I, yeah, I got a scholarship to go there, sorry. I didn't know if I had said that. <laughs> However, I hit some bumps in the road my second semester freshman year, as most freshmen do. And when I came home that summer, I wanted to go back up with new energy. However, almost instantly, right when I got back up for my sophomore year, that energy was shot down. Um, I'm not going to go into deep detail or tell my whole story, but my sophomore year of college, I was surrounded by depression and anxiety within myself and within pretty much everyone around me. And it was primarily caused by sexual assault, suicidal thoughts and attempts, drama, and a lot, a lot, a lot of drinking and drug abuse. So over the summer, I worked with a therapist, I worked with my family, I worked with myself, and I started to go to church again. So I began to work with God, and I ultimately made the decision to transfer home. Yeah, so um, anytime you make a big change like this, there is a risk and there's cost. And so I wondered, could you share with us, like, what are the things that that, that decision cost you? So physically, it cost me a few things. Um, I'm no longer a student athlete, and going into college, that was pretty important to me. Uh, so I was kind of sad to say goodbye to that. Um, I did have about four really good friends at Carthage, so they're far away now. I was talking with a boy, as college students do, and by transferring, that whole relationship blew up in my face and ended. I was involved in the Greek life, and this was probably the hardest part about transferring, was I was hoping for support, and I did get some but the amount of hate and criticism that I got completely shocked me. So that emotionally cost me a little bit of peace for a while. But it did prove to me who was seriously there for me and wanted to be a part of my life, both in Springfield and from Carthage. And I think it's important that I say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. 
So now as you're kind of coming through that, how have you seen God bring you through the fire? So the outcome has been incredible. I used to wake up hungover, of course, almost every Sunday morning. And it wasn't just Sunday morning. It was multiple times. Uh, And I would just be filled with darkness and a lot of regret. And I knew that I wasn't living my life for the Lord. And I knew that some of these situations I put myself into because you have to take responsibility for some of your actions. Uh, There were many moments where I didn't think I'd make it out of that place mentally or physically. Um, I have so much more peace in my life now, and I know it's because of God. I live my life so differently now, and I try to do it all for God. I still make mistakes, but even within my mistakes, it's completely different from last year. God has brought me through the fire because I went through the absolute hardest year of my life. I worked hard with people who loved me. I learned how to relove myself and forgive myself. And within all of that, I have healed enough to be standing up here and starting to talk about it in a safe place. Without God, I would not be here today. I would not be living this life. And I believe that that is how God brought me through the fire. Thanks so much for sharing that. Like, we're, it's just exciting to see what God is doing in you. But the point I think that Jane makes, or that Kate makes for all of us is that being different isn't easy. Like making those decisions are not easy. There are going to be people who will be upset with you. They will cost you things. And then third, being a Christian will require me to stand up and stick out at some point. What does it mean about our faith if we don't ever stick out? If we easily blend into the culture around us, this is what I'm tiptoeing around here that I think we all need to consider. If our faith doesn't make us look different, if it doesn't ever cost us anything, if it's easy and it doesn't require us to ever awkwardly stick out, then I have to ask, are we really following Jesus? Are we really his disciples? Because a disciple's job is to be a student and do everything that his master does. And so if we're disciples of Jesus, we're going to look like him, and we're going to do the kinds of things that he would do if he were us. Tonight, we want to take communion together as a CSF family. And depending on your faith tradition, you may have experienced different ways of taking communion. And so we're just going to look at take the simple model found in the Bible. Um, In Luke 22, Jesus was at a table with some of his friends, and he took some bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks for it. And then he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they all took a drink. And I think when Jesus told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me, you know, he didn't mean eat this and feel really sad that I'm gone. Or um, drink this and just sit here and think about all the bad things that you've done and feel really badly about it. I think he wanted them to remember who Jesus was and why he came. He wanted them to remember who they were. Um, It was the same thing, um, you know, Daniel's friends were doing. They were remembering the faithfulness of God, a God who would come to earth and would rescue us and give us hope, and give us purpose. So as we take communion tonight, this is open to everybody who's a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be perfect, um, but if you're not sure 
um, what you think about who Jesus is or um, you're just checking things out tonight, we just want to encourage you to, to feel free to sit and just have some time of reflection. Um, tonight, we want to be clear that being a Christian sometimes means standing up and sticking out. And so as we come up, you're going to see that there's um, some bread and you can take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and eat it. And then we want to encourage you to come to the mic here that's in the center and simply declare, I belong to Jesus. Now, is this cheesy? Maybe. <laughs> uh, will you feel uncomfortable? Some of you might. But I think that there are people in this room who probably have never made that decision or never made that declaration out loud. And I think that there are people in this room who just need to be reminded of the commitment that they made once before. If we're going to be serious about following Jesus, it's going to require us to make a choice between fitting in and obeying God. It may cost us our comfort or our coolness, and we might have to stick out from time to time. But that's what it means to live as foreigners and as refugees in Babylon. That's what it means to be different. So as David comes up and plays, you're invited to come and take communion.